happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. Um, and I'm joined tonight, as always, by Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Good evening from Oklahoma City. I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, and I am wearing my Superman shirt for no other reason than I'm just feeling really special. So I'm very excited that the gremlins have been permanently banished, and I understand you're going to have some kind of special ritual for burning a USB cable immediately following the show. I do believe that'll be part of my strategy tonight. So I'm hoping that, uh, that the, we started off tonight with the same audio doom that I experienced in the last episode for those that could join us. And so I'm hoping that cobbling together several USB devices to create something where I can hear and speak will, uh, stay together for the next hour. Sounds good. Well, where should we start tonight, sir? Well, uh, you know, let's start with the Mossberg article. Um, I, I actually listened to three of the articles that we're, we're doing tonight on Pocket as, a, as an aside. It's not my geek of the week, but I'm definitely, you know, saving articles in there and, and listening to them. And it's a, an automated voice. But uh, Mossberg's article, the PC is being redefined from today in Recode. It's pretty fascinating, and he's he's really trying to, I think, call on Apple to innovate in the laptop uh, tablet space, and as I understand it, you know, create a laptop that runs basically iOS, but is not, you know, just an iPad with a keyboard. Um, and he has some references to, I, I guess, how poorly he thinks the current um, hybrid tablets from Android or with with an, running Android and Chrome. Are um, and so he's really calling for for a redefinition. So I don't know it. I don't know if Apple has the mojo to pull this off, frankly, without Jobs. And it seems like we're in the same fractured environment with products that we were before Jobs came back and cleaned stuff up with with the iMac and you know whatever else was before iPods and iPhones and everything else. So what was your take on that? Yeah, it's it's a super interesting article, and I, I do think, I mean, we, we've been talking about, well, I mean, since we've started on this podcast, and we're, you know, a year into broadcasting now, and we've talked about this topic a number of times as it, as it, it relates to schools, um, and it's been a topic that has been a fairly consistent theme um, across the, the tech journalism, that, you know, the personal computer, well, we think of the personal computer, which for geeks was, uh, you know, was really established in our heads 20, 25, 30 years ago, that conception has been replaced for most of the you know, general American public with the mobile phone or the tablet. Um, and PC sales are down, desktop and laptop sales are down. The only um, element of, of life in, in uh, computer sales is, is really the Chromebook market, and that's really not a universal device. That's more or less in schools. And so it does beg the question, where is the, the market going? And I would still maintain, and, and I'll tell you from, from my day jobs experience that, um, you know, it, it's not that tablets and mobile devices can't be extremely convenient devices for consuming content, but um, you still have to jump through a lot of hoops to produce content in those uh, in those devices. And, and for me, it's mostly written content. Um, you know, uh, an example of why my day jobs program doesn't support uh, tablets and, and, and cell phones. It's not that we don't have kids using those devices. It's that we can't support kids who can't figure out how to use those devices to be productive because there's no file management available in, 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 um, it's especially true of iOS, but it's also true of Android. That's difficult to create a document and then turn that document into something that you're sending as a file. And I get that that's becoming a dated notion with, with shared access to documents, et cetera. But, um, you know, there is a lot of transitions happening in regards to this environment. So I do wonder, um, you know, how that's going to play out. Um, Something I've been really interested in ever since I got kind of back into Windows with the release of Windows 10 in, um, I guess it was 2015, is that that, in my mind, has really refreshed a lot of older hardware. And when I say older hardware, I mean six, seven, eight-year-old hardware to being at least 
um, you know, basically accessible uh, to an end user, right? If you slap an SSD drive, enough RAM in Windows 10 on a, you know, even a, a Core 2 Duo Intel processing machine, relatively new Core 2 Duo in- processing machine, you can be productive, very productive in that environment. That's been interesting, I think, but, you know, PCs are still in a really weird place in the market. They are, and, you know... Huh. It's for from the school aspect in terms of trying to anticipate things, especially, you know, for us, we we keep hold on to our computers for five years or or we have um, it, it makes for for challenging purchasing, um, you know, listening to the Mossberg article, you know, almost makes makes me, um, you know, wonder whether we should be giving teachers an, an opportunity to, you know, get an, get an iPad Pro with a keyboard and look at that as an alternative to their traditional laptop. Um, the student information system that we have transitioned to last summer is really, you know, robust as far as HTML5 compliance. And that means it works basically as well in an iOS browser like Safari or Chrome as it does, you know, on a laptop. So, um, it's, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, when we want to step out beyond the known, uh, you know, there, there's a whole lot of factors that fit into that. And certainly the return on investment and how long things are going to last is going to, is going to be a big factor. So I think it's still a little risky if we take the, the educational technology lens view to, you know, step out with any of these, um, hybrid Chrome devices. They're so early days with, with them. Um, and, you know, even even to say, I guess what Apple is trying to do is they put the the iPad Pro face to face against you know PC laptops. I think they're running some ads about that now. I just still think we're too early days for that. Um, as you said, from a content creation standpoint, and just from from the standpoint of being able to manage files. So while things are going fast, you know, users, as that article points out, you know, if you grew up in the '90s to whatever, maybe 10 years ago, you know, the desktop operating system that that's your metaphor. You know, managing files, all of those kind of things, and we're we're making shifts to the cloud, but. Um, you know, in terms of what we're going to be doing broadly in schools, I think we're still going to be having teachers largely, you know, comfortable with laptops and, and school systems in general more comfortable with laptops. And that's why we're going to continue to see more uptick on Chromebooks and, and Chrome devices. And, um, you know, ta- tablets have, have their place and we've got, we've got folks that are implementing, but it's, it's definitely, uh, more of a, of a square peg in a round hole or whatever, or vice versa, whatever that, <clears throat> that metaphor is, I think. When you when it comes to to the iPad implementations, hopefully I'm not being struck down by by uh, Apple Lightning making that. <laughs> well, and there's a related article to this. Um, I also put an article in tonight's show notes. And by the way, the show notes are available at our website www.edtechsr.com, where we post all of our links every week. And we always put way more than we could ever possibly talk about in an hour. So even if you um, aren't looking for this week's links uh, that we're talking about, there's other fodder there for your uh, amusement. But uh, there was another interesting article in, in The Verge yesterday um, where uh, and there seems to be some, some disagreement about how legitimate the headline was. But basically, the, the, uh, the Verge article says, don't expect Google to talk about new, a new Pixel laptop. And in fact, there seems to be a lot of evidence that the Pixel laptop um, is dead. And for those of you unaware of the Pixel laptop, when um, uh, Google was initially pushing Chromebooks, Five, six years ago, they released a, a, a Pixel laptop, which was a thousand or thirteen hundred dollar Google manufactured uh, Chromebook that was had really high end specs, beautiful build quality on um, uh, high amounts of RAM and SSD drive space. And the, the Pixel, I'm sorry, the Chrome OS, which ran like lightning on the advanced hardware of the Chromebook Pixel. They released a Pixel 2 two years later. The Pixel 2 was the same thing. This time, that one ranged up to $1,600 for the, the highest-end version, which included the ability to hook it up to an LTE signal um, so you could slap a SIM card into it and then access um, uh, the Internet via cell towers. Um, and that device has been pulled off the a Play Store, the hardware store that Google runs for the purposes of selling wares. And uh, people took that and some other comments by Google by saying there won't be a future Pixel. And then this article says that 
um, that it's not that they don't have plans. They're just not ready to discuss any plans publicly. But I think that that's something that's part of the nuance here. Chromebooks are starting to come up with a number of middle ground um, uh, options that make it, I think, more attractive for teachers and advanced users. Uh, the new Samsung Chromebook Plus, the um, the Chromebook Flip, which has uh, uh, options for eight gigabytes of RAM and larger hard drive space, um, plus uh, high-end Intel processors, which make it a really, really fast uh, uh, prospect in comparison to the slower Chromebooks that are running ARM chips and low-end Intel processors. When that space gets more prolific, I think that does become very competitive against an iPad Pro. And it gives you a little bit of portability in that you know a lot of them have the flip interface that allows you to turn into it's not really a tablet because it's this big bulky thing with two layers to it, but it's it's tablet-esque, right? And so as that architecture begins to fill out, I think tablets you may or may not be able to to be the real replacement for desktop computers. I have two two related thoughts on this. Last week on Thursday and Friday, I was in the Dallas area at a conference at the Oak Ridge School, which is in Arlington, and then uh, at a day-long visit to the Parish Episcopal School, which is, they're both amazing schools. <clears throat> but uh, BYOD, especially at Parish, is the name of the game, and they're doing a lot of makerspace STEM stuff with Inkscape, and they've got uh, laser cutters and, you know, all kinds of 3D printers, and, you know, they really want their students to be able to run different software applications, and so kids are, are, are doing BYOD with either a Windows or a Mac laptop, and they're really not in the Chrome space. And uh, I'd love to see trend reports of what schools are doing right now to, to see whether or not my perception is, you know, supported by, by data. My perception is that a lot more schools are moving to BYOD, um, not just from a cost standpoint, but, but also from how quickly the technology is changing, um, you know, price standpoint. And, and so I just, I don't know how many true one-to-one, you know, school is buying all these devices. And this is, this is what you have to use, uh, deployments that we're seeing right now. So I don't know if the one, there's a one-to-one institute that I think is, I think they're based out of Michigan. Um, I went to their conference in Chicago a number of years ago. And I know the anywhere, that's it, anywhere, anytime learning foundation, AALF, that's the, the one out of California, out of uh, Australia that, um, oh, he's partnered with Will Richardson now. I'll, I'll have to look up his name. Anyway, I don't know what that data is, but, but the BYOD side of that, um, comes to mind. And, um, you know, Peggy in the, in the chat room said she'd never heard of the Pixel laptop. That was, it was an experiment, I think, from Google. It was very high end. Um, limited numbers were produced, but really, I, I heard about it from the, uh, the, the Chrome podcast, which was produced by GigaOM and, and Kevin, uh, oh gosh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blank on his name. Kevin Oval. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, he, he has one and had used it. So I don't know. We're seeing these things experiment. And, and as we've talked about before in the, you know, in the past, sometimes we can kind of have our eyes diverted. I, I mean, what do you think are, are the big trends? Um, Jason and, and one of the, let's bring it home. One of the decisions that I, I need to help to make with my wife in, in probably the next month or so, I would say before ISTE is a new laptop. She has had her current, she's on her second Chromebook. Um, we had a Samsung originally that was one of the really flimsy, you know, very, very cheap ones, but then she got this nice Toshiba, uh, which has been good, but you know, by current standards, it's, it's heavy. Um, and, and she's actually thinking MacBook. Um, and she's the only person in our, in our family who doesn't have their own MacBook. So I don't know that, that, that's a, fa- that's a family decision. And so th- weighing, you know, there's cost factors in there, but also function, you know, capability of what you're going to be able to do. Um, I haven't made a decision about that, and it's not just mine. It's also, obviously, it's going to be her device. But what do you, do you do? You see some solid trend lines that we can take to the bank at this point, Jason, when it comes to all this, all these rumors, and as well as dynamic, you know, experiments and things that are happening in the marketplace. 
Well, I mean, assuming the Chromebook stays uh, trending upward in schools, right? And I don't, I don't have any evidence to suggest that it's not. Um, I'm part of a listserv in Montana um, that, that is made of tech directors, and there was a pretty lively discussion um, in the last 48 hours related to Chromebooks and mass rollouts in big and small school districts across the state of Montana. I think the the, the trend there is that suddenly there are um, there, there are mid-range Chromebooks that I think would make great long-term devices for power users. And that's the difference between now and, you know, 12, 24, 36 months ago is that, that there's really been the appearance of a half dozen or so really legitimately high-end devices, um, you know, that aren't costing $1,600. You know, I, I've actually played with a Chromebook Pixel before. Um, I have a friend that, that trains out of Wisconsin that I've been some, some, um, uh, conferences with, and I and I got it. It sounds bizarre, but it was good enough for me. Touch his Chromebook, right? Like he has, he was running around with a, a Pixel One, and it was a, it was, a, it felt nice in the hand. The keyboard had nice travel to it. It was obviously very speedy. Uh, you could buy one of those, by the way, for four hundred dollars new on eBay. I mean, the the original Chromebook Pixel, um, you know, used ones are even cheaper, but the new ones are are you could buy those from a lot of uh, uh, corporate. Uh, uh, um, uh, corporate overrun outlets, but um, and I've been tempted by that. that a, it was a thousand bucks when it came out, wasn't it? Yeah, the one that uh, is going went out for a thousand bucks. This was three years, four years ago, three years ago. Uh, I guess three and a half years ago now. I mean that. In fact, I'm looking at one right now on eBay for three hundred ninety nine dollars, and um, and that's the new one too. I might add, and that's uh the the the, the it's I think it's only four gigabytes of RAM, which is a little sad, but. Um, it's an otherwise a really high end Chromebook, right? And I, I think that that the fact that that's available and the three the C three hundred two Chromebook Flip, which has got the nice Intel um, mobile processor in it and and four gigabytes of RAM, um, I'm saving up for the higher end version of that. That's going to come out with the M seven chip in probably the next two months plus eight gigabytes of RAM. Like I think those are all very compelling platforms. Whereas the Mac, I mean, you can buy the really beautiful um, 13 inch new MacBook Pro without the touch bar and the 15 inch without the touch bar. The touch bar adds a couple hundred dollars and it wouldn't really do much for me at this particular point in time. Um, but you know, the, the MacBook errors are not being, um, are, 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 are seemingly dead. Um, who knows? That's, that's still a little bit up in the air. Um, you know, the, there, so there is no lower end MacBook at this point And I, I think I'd have a hard time deciding if I could choose just one. Well, I think you probably ought to transition us then into our long list of Apple rumors. Um, so there's there's a bunch of those because we have an event coming up, right, uh, this month? Uh, it's a rumored event, but almost certainly an event. Right. So, um, I, you know, actually, I don't I don't think the, – well, the article – yeah, the one that I had read was the, the Mac rumors one. Uh, this was uh, February 28th, Apple CEO Tim Cook. You will see us do more in the pro area because it has been years, right, since the trash can um, Mac Pro has been upgraded and, and pro users are just feeling feeling very neglected. And, again, Apple is fractured into a lot of different product lines and um, – so, you know, people have been wondering why, you know, what, what what's going on? Are they going to abandon their pro users? Um, anything else? What, what stood out from you in, in the in the host of other articles there? I definitely see a few, you know, the USB-C article. Yeah, let's start there. So The Verge is reporting a rumor that has been half debunked by other sites. And I have to be clear, there's no... There's no consensus on whether or not this is realistic or not, but The Verge was reporting uh, based on a Wall Street Journal article that the rumor is that Apple will finally dump the Lightning interface, which is their power and data transfer interface on mobile devices, that the iPads, um, iPhones, iPod touches for the very now prolific USB-C interface um, which has, you know, kind of lit on fire and, and is on most high-end Android phones, um, an increasing number of middle and low-end Android phones, and is also the interface they use on the MacBook, which is the um, uh, the smaller 12-inch thin, super thin device. I that's what, it's what I'm using right now. Yeah. That's what Wes is using right now. And then um, I believe it's also the power interface on the new MacBook Pros, uh, with Retina, the 13 and 15 inch MacBook Pros. And, um, I have to say, I think it's a pretty compelling argument that even though I, I, I don't like the fact that the MagSafe, 
um, adapter, the easy pull adapter that was on the MacBook Pro before, even though I, I bemoaned the, the death of that, I think it would be great news if um, Apple moved away from the Lightning, non-compatible Lightning connector, and instead went with the now uh, emerging standard of USB-C. Well, I'll say we've been personally frustrated on trips um, by the incompatibility of some third-party lightning cables, and, and they may yeah. even be some Amazon Basics. Generally, we've had good success at school ordering Amazon Basics, uh, HDMI cables, and other things. But when it comes to the lightning cables, uh, some iPhones especially just seem to be really finicky. My wife's will not charge on anything except an Apple you know, lightning cable. So... Hopefully, if they do that, they're going to be, you know, compatible with with other um, third party brands. And and it does it. It's so expensive for schools to have to deal with all of these all of these different video adapters and and AC, you know AC adapters. And <clears throat> I've mentioned before in the podcast that our school has has been able to central or standardize on the circa twelve two thousand twelve pre Retina MacBook Pro with a built in DVD drive and you know internal. Ethernet and actually also the security port. That's something else you don't hear people talk about that much, but they, they took no. away the security port after that model. And so pros, airs, none of them have, have a security port. Um, which, you know, we provide a little security port, you know, combination lock for every single teacher to be able to, to lock their, their laptop in their room and then not have to worry, you know, leaving for lunch or whatever else, uh, about their laptop going away. So I, um, I would, if I was going to bet, I would bet that Apple will change because it just seems like they're constantly changing, you know, their adapters. Um, but there, there's, there's a lot of good reason. If you look at the speed that the USB-C can support and, um, you know, the simplicity of just having that, that single cable, um, I, you know, it does seem persuasive, but it also is kind of an eye roll when you're in a, in a, in a school support situation. You're like, really? And we're, you know, what are, how many other things are we going to need to support and have on hand to help, you know, replace if, if they break for teachers? Yep. Um, other rumors have been out in the last week. Uh, there's rumors of, of refreshes on the iPad Pro models, um, which makes sense because it was about a year ago when the big iPad Pro was released. Um, there are other rumors based on the fact that Target has pulled all of their iPhone SE existing stock from stores. Um, the iPhone SE was the smaller, older, uh, older style. It's probably not older style. It's probably the right way of putting it. It was the older size, the kind of thinner, um, uh, 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 I, four, 4S, 5, 5S sized phone that packed in the newer hardware into it. They pulled that stock, suggesting there will be a refresh on that. Um, and then there's also a lot of um, uh, uh, advertising that Apple's been pushing out around uh, the pencil and the iPad Pros as a kind of replacement for paper. So it's the versatility of paper in the device you carry around with you, the iPad Pro. So, uh, you know, I think that there will be a lot in that direction. Um, for me, I think the question, actually, I, I have two questions that will they update the iPad Air? Because the iPad Air 2 is the current model, and that's two, two and a half years old now. It's been a while since that's been refreshed. Um, and I actually think I'm currently carrying around a three-year-old iPad Air 2. Uh, I'm sorry, a three-year-old iPad Mini 2. Um, and if I were to update, I think it would be to an iPad Pro. So I think that's a, that's a possibility for me. And then I, I, having a definitive answer whether the iPad uh, – or I'm sorry, the MacBook Air is dead. Um, you know, there it, it, it seems to be for certain – um, and people have been, you know, kind of uh, uh, eulogizing it in, in, in tech media. But um, I, you know, that may impact if I buy another or if, if, you know, how soon I buy another MacBook. Um, I have played with a new MacBook Pro um, with Retina. Uh, there are some in the university bookstore um, uh, on the college campus where I work. And I got to say, the keyboard is lovely. The form factor is really nice. Um, I'm amazed by the trackpad, which has no give to it. But because it uses that taptic feedback, you push it and you get a very visceral response to it like you feel it like it's pushing down it's creepy and awesome at the same time um and although i have no use for the little um uh, uh touch bar touch bar on top um i'm sure i'd get used to it after a while so you know interesting stuff i think have you played with the pencil because you know ben wilkoff was really extolling the wonders of of the apple pencil 
The only person I know with an iPad or an iPad Pro is uh, Dr. Martin Horage at the University of Montana, and I honestly don't know if he ever got a pencil. Uh, he was carrying that around as his daily driver for a while. Um, I have not seen him with it lately, but that also is because we've been um, in, embroiled, in, embroiled in dissertation fun stuff. But um, you know, the bottom line is is that um, it's I think it's a compelling form factor, even though I would be honest that I'd be a little terrified to carry around that as a daily driver, like the, the thousand dollar basically big sheet of glass would be. And I, I don't know why, cause I've carried around, you know, expensive I, or MacBooks and stuff before, but that's really my hesitation there. Well, the big impact for us will be, we're, we're looking at refreshing uh, a number of laptops this year and, the iPad Air is the one that looks the best for us because we feel like our teachers need the ports, right? Going to uh, one of the, the new pros is awfully expensive. Um, you can still get the older generation uh, pre-touch bar uh, MacBook Pro, um, but it's, it's also, you know, on the, on the pricier side. So, um, gosh, if, if I, I don't know. Maybe I should wait till after this, this March announcement as far as, you know, ordering ordering some more laptops because as we order this, you know, we don't, re you don't really want to get stuck with some orphans, you know, just a few of these particular kind of laptops. It's, it's much better if your inventory and your fleet is somewhat standardized and then you've got the ability to, you know, swap out things. But you know, the, the other thing that's changed big in laptops for Apple is, is um, being able to open up the cases without breaking the warranty and being able to replace stuff, you know, uh, with these older laptops, we can, we switched out a trackpad last week, you know, you can swap that. Of course they still have DVD, you know, drives, but you know, Ram upgrades, all of those kind of things, you know, we, we can do with the old and that's, Sort of, that's sort of like the progression of appliances in your home, right? You can't open that and fix that. Just throw it away. Refrigerator, fix it. <laughs> throw it away and get a new one. You know, uh, it's not quite that bad with the laptop, but I do think that we void a warranty if we crack open the cases of these, uh, these airs. And so, you know, it just, it, it's a different, it's a different support environment, which again makes you think about cost and, and, uh, repair and, you know, Chromebook alternatives. So Pe Peggy's saying it sounds like you should wait on the air to see if they're going to support it. Yeah, well, the one good thing I'll say, too, and I, and I definitely know situations that this has happened, you know, let's say they do stop support of the air. Well, they'll have a bunch in the pipeline. So, you know, that week might be the time to contact your Apple rep and say, hey, do you have some airs you're trying to get rid of? And maybe they're going to sell them at regular price, but sometimes they'll, they'll discount. Usually that's if you're doing a really high volume you know, purchase or something like that. But anyway, sometimes when products are end of life, uh, it is a good opportunity to, to pick some up. Absolutely. All right. Well, if it's okay, I'd like to take us down to, to some privacy and surveillance articles. And sure. the one I want to go to is by scientific American from February 25th. And it's titled will democracy survive big data and artificial intelligence. And this is one of the articles that I actually listened to in the car, uh, letting uh, the voice, the, the um, female Australian Siri voice uh, read this to me. And this is probably one of the longest articles I've read in a long time. And we can probably do an entire graduate course about this. Um, the bibliography at the end is, is got a lot of articles that I'm going to, Oh, at least some of the articles that I'm going to want to follow up on. Um, I, I have not heard of this term before, the big nudge. And one of the things it's talking about is the ways in which as databases get to know our preferences and our personalities, then they're able to make suggestions to us that follow so much along with what we would be wanting and desiring that we don't really realize that we're being, you know, manipulated and, and, uh, you know, moved in this kind of a direction. And so the big nudge is when big data meets this. And, you know, we've talked on the show about Cambridge Analytics, which is the firm that worked for the anti-Brexit campaign that, you know, blocked the, the uh, United Kingdom or pushed the vote so that they left the EU, worked for the Cruz campaign in the primary and then the Trump campaign in the general election and are credited by some as having a substantial effect on, um, on election outcomes. And so um, this is... I'm, I don't know. I'm rather pessimistic. They're talking about how we need to, to really rethink governance and we're going to have to, you know, be 
um, aware of, of, of social polarization. We've, we've talked about this before, echo chamber effect, you know, this idea that, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll quote this. Suggestions that are sufficiently customized to each individual in this way, local trends are gradually reinforced by repetition, leading to a filter bubble or echo chamber. In the end, all you might get is your own opinions reflected back at you, leading to social polarization, separate groups that don't understand each other uh, and increasingly find themselves in conflict with one another. And so I don't know. I, I don't know if we have. I mean, we, we have to, right? Corporations are a big part of what has brought us to the status quo with respect to um, our lack of privacy protection laws in the United States, especially. You and I can't today insist that companies release to us all of the information that they have gathered about us. And number two, we can't uh, have control over how that data is used. And some of what they're talking about in this article is that we need to have privacy protection regimes that are interoperable and empower uh, citizens and consumers to, number one, know what is being collected about you. And then number two, you know, control how that is 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 affected, you know. But overall, and I'll reference Larry Lessig, who is, I think, the best potential presidential candidate we had that, you know, only only was in the not not seriously considered by the Democratic Party to be a contender. So he wasn't invited to any of the of the primary debates. But he's done a lot of work with the Sunlight Foundation and with other groups looking at the impact of, um, you know, corporate finance and saying we're in a new gilded age in America. And then until we deal with campaign finance and the impact of money in elections, we're really not going to change anything. And I think that analysis probably is true here in the data privacy environment because companies are going to be happy to continue to, you know, gather information in secret and do what they want to with it. So Jason, what are your opinions on those things? Do you uh, think we, we have the um, political wherewithal to change some of our institutions and, and, and get some of this stuff changed or are we, are we kind of in a dark place? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of, of, of kind of, I guess, supposition media that, that suggests that, you know, one of the reasons why that Mr. Trump was able to win the presidency was a lot of, of, of uh, kind of big data trends that, that he had hired some pretty smart people to kind of look through and they defied, uh, you know, conventional realities. And so Trump won the 2016 election doing nothing like any other candidate had, had done before. And that includes Barack Obama, who won in both 08 and 12 using a lot of technological innovations to try to organize people at the community level. Um, if that's all true, then all the institutions and all the assumptions that we make about politics and let's, let's focuses in the United States may not be real anymore. Like I never really bought the notion of New Hampshire, um, um, an early primary state and the focus on what's so-called retail politics, the notion that, you know, uh, going there and meeting people and shaking their hands and sitting in their in their cafes and, and going to, I guess, in 2016 would have been probably their breweries, uh, you know, uh, really did vet political candidates like it did before. But a lot of people do believe that in the world of big data, none of that matters. And in fact, um, you know, probably Iowa, New Hampshire matter a lot less than people might suppose in that political process. And I think that turns a lot of institutions on their ears. And if we are as consistent, um, if we are able to be decided and determined by an logarithm and we are no more nuanced than that, then that's a that's a pretty big deal. And it does question in a lot of the central tenets that we assign to democracy, political behavior in a relation to one another. And yeah, that would be concerning to me. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, my little, my little corner of the world is uh, right now is, is somewhat consumed about the status of journalism in 2017. It seems like, uh, you know, papers have been dying for 20 years now, perhaps because of terrible decisions made in the nineties regarding free content, but how do we support real journalism in 2017 and pay the folks that are doing investigative journalism and not engaged in fake news. I'm glad you said investigative journalism. The other article I put in, and this is really, I guess, just like a blog post. So this isn't a, a like a news source, but this is from Jonathan Stray uh, from February 24th. And the article is called Defense Against Dark Arts, uh, Network Propaganda and Counterpropaganda. Um, there is a shocking statistic and he he is not in this article taking on the the ethics of this and i get and that's that's an important takeaway from both of these articles is that we 
we really need to be thinking about the ethics of technology use, and we need to think about the ways ethics fit into the required curriculum for everyone. Um, I, I did not put the link in, and I think I'll, I'll talk about it next week, but I was listening to a couple-week-old um, um, oh, radio. What's the amazing NPR? Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to pull it up. Um, it's about CRISPR uh, from... Radio Lab. Uh, it's a Radio Lab about CRISPR. So, in two different places, in that podcast, which I haven't quite finished listening to, as well as this uh, second article about dark arts, they're talking about a Socratic—not uh, a Socratic, uh, a Hippocratic oath. Right? That's what doctors take to do no harm. And they're talking about the importance of of having folks who, for instance, are taking computer science classes and learning how to develop algorithms. Um, to try to encourage the, the, the taking of some oaths as far as uh, doing no harm. Um, but the, the, well, there's a bunch of, and I haven't, I didn't uh, tweet out. Sometimes I'm in the habit now of, of tweeting out different, different quotes, but here's one from this Jonathan Stray article. They, this is talking about the strategies that China as well as Russia engage in for propaganda. And, and so these are called different things, information warfare, but it's saying we estimate, that the Chinese government fabricates and posts about 448 million social media comments a year. Uh, in contrast to prior claims, we show the Chinese regime strategy is to avoid arguing with skeptics. And so one of the things this points out, we've talked about fake news and we've talked about Snopes and digital literacy and, you know, how do we grapple with these things? And the article is saying that from a psychological perspective, correcting someone and pointing out this is wrong and this is right really doesn't have much of an effect at all on changing anybody's opinion. Um, what some of the research indicates does is assertively, you know, sharing alter, alternate information and also sharing that in advance and sort of getting to, to people before, you know, disinformation does. But I, I would say an educational connection here, and I've been passionate about this for a while and I'm not currently, you know, sort of beating this drum. Every single one of our schools needs to have a digital journalism group. We need students who are learning to be local investigative journalists. And it's a lot easier to obviously celebrate the great things happening at school than to investigate something controversial in your community. But having students, helping students get very comfortable with the use of digital text, with audio, with video, with the ways these are shared on different platforms, um, we're in it. We're in really a more dangerous place today because of network effects and the monopolistic uh, control that, for instance, Google has in the United States with respect to search. Baidu isn't Baidu like the fate? They're like the Google of, of China, right? Is, am I? Am That's I correct. That right? Yeah, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. Okay. And then when you look at Facebook and and their power. Part of what we, I think, need to be advocating for is, you know, citizen journalism, you know, critical thinking, and then the independent publication of information on platforms that we uh, control and, you know, not not simply, you know, falling into the trap of everything goes in goes into this um, plat this free platform where, you know, we are the product, as we've talked about before. So I don't know this there's there's in both of those articles, there's so much stuff that you know, we could, we could probably talk at, at much greater length, but um, you have any other kind of educational uh, conclusions to, to take from, from any of that, Jason, or recommendations for people? Yeah, I mean, I, I it, this is a long conversation that I don't think we've even scratched the surface of yet, and there probably is a big message here um, that we're not even catching yet, right? I mean, I, I think that... Um, you know, uh, the big using big data to hone messages is such a different way of approaching things, right? I mean, you know, and, and we've we've had polling for years, and politicians have keep an eye on polls and message based on that, but that's so different than you know what calling what a pollster says or answering some probably relatively weakly worded questions is so different than tracking people's behaviors based on what pictures they click on and what they like and don't like. And I've got actually a a, a pretty interesting tool to share with people tonight called Data Selfie. That's a Chrome plugin that keeps and I, when you're on Facebook, so it can kind of draw a picture for you over time, the kinds of conclusions it can make based on your clicks, uh, speaking of this, this topic, but we'll talk about that a little bit then. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that, you know, we, 
we have to keep hammering at this until we find the truth. And there isn't truth yet on this. Like, we don't really understand this yet. And all the kind of hand-wringing you see around politics right now, it's not the United States. It's the United States and France and Britain and Central Europe. Uh, like, we're all experiencing this phenomenon, and it's because we're all experiencing this you know, media phenomenon, this, this information phenomenon that is um, uh, beyond our experience, beyond our ability to understand. And we have to keep hammering at this. I just had a thought, you know, uh, maybe three or four years ago, I had a chance to go to Qatar, uh, which is on the Arabian Peninsula, right by the, um, uh, what would, what some would be calling the Persian Gulf, others would maybe call the, what, the Arab Gulf, or, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's right there, uh, next to, uh, Iran and Iraq. And, um, that was at, right after the time of the Arab Spring. I actually interviewed a student who had been visiting a college in Cairo and was hit by a ricocheted bullet on the street because she was going there to, to her career square. At that time, and, and perhaps, no, still, uh, you know, authoritarian, um, governments, uh, non-democratic governments in the Middle East, very, very concerned about social media, about these kind of uprisings, about what this meant for democracy, lots and lots of concern over that. And I think we've seen, you know, this shift to, to surveillance and embracing, you know, some of these technologies in, in part for that. And it's interesting that now, you know, the West, where I, th- I think we are justifiably concerned about our political systems and the degree to which we uh, are being manipulated or can be manipulated. And, you know, what, what is, what does liberal democracy mean in the surveillance state? Um, mm-hmm. on the topic of tracking, that's the third article there under privacy and surveillance for tonight is a February 2nd article from Engadget. Vizio tracked and sold your TV viewing habits without consent. And they had a multi-million dollar settlement that they paid. And it's, it's sort of like the metadata stuff that you heard the government. Oh, it's just metadata. You know, they said, well, we were just doing it in aggregate, but you know, this idea that we sold you this device and we're just collecting all this information. One of the points, um, so, th- so this is a big idea that, you know, advertisers ought to not be operating in the dark outside of anyone's control. Um, from the Dark Arts article, it says, as manipulative technologies such as big nudging function in a similar way to personalized advertising, other laws are affected too. Advertisements must be marked as such and must not be misleading. They are, they are also not allowed to, to utilize certain psychological tricks such as subliminal stimuli. This is why it's prohibited to show a soft drink in a film for a split second because then the advertising is not consciously perceptible while it still may have a subconscious effect. I mean, we don't have laws in the United States um, about a lot of this. And so I think, I think there's important room for advocacy here. And I think that uh, we need to push back even on CNN and other sites, right? When you go to the bottom and you see these different clickbait articles, um, they're masquerading as actual news and, and you have to be savvy. And we had an administrative assistant just the other day at work, uh, because we have a different filter on, our firewall uh, that blocks some ads. I mean, she was looking for, um, you know, um, Avery label templates and, and hadn't been realizing that those links at the top were ads. And when she was clicking on them, they were blocked. And, you know, we had to say, just go below those and, and don't click those and click these other ones. These are things everyone needs to know, right? Everyone needs to know generally at the top of your search results, you're going to have sponsored advertisements that people are paying are, are paying to have. That's a, it's sort of like a very basic digital literacy lesson, but it's one that, that a lot of people have missed. So I think, um, like you said, there's, there's a, there's a lot in this. This is a long, big conversation. Um, I'd really commend both of those, those articles. Um, and, and then I think just for us to consider the importance of journalism in school, because how do we, and, and read Neil Postman, right? Read Amusing Ourselves to Death. Read Teaching as a Subversive Activity. Uh, you know, pre-internet, he was championing how we all need to have crap detectors. <laughs> we all, and, I, and that's not necessarily my favorite word for that, but, you know, we all need to be able to uh, critically discern what is valid and what is not, where is the bias. And, and this should really be an important and central part of, of what we're doing in school as well as thinking about how we overlay the ethics in this and how that's not some kind of aside, but it really, it needs to be important, right? Because if we, if we're writing algorithms and we're not coding to be ethical, right? The algorithm isn't going to be ethical. The algorithm is, you know, 
is is probably just going to follow whatever rules we put in. Um, you know, barring the the uh, singularity and the release of whatever. I don't know if I if I if I think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, as far as <laughs> sentient AI that's going to it's that's going to be big. But these are definitely some some great articles to get you thinking and and uh, even considering you know what it is how. How do we? I've I've been guilty of sending those Snope corrections to people, and I don't know. Maybe I sh- maybe I shouldn't worry about that. Maybe there's different advocacy that's going to be more effective than trying to point out when people are wrong. I don't know. Well, and that's I mean, and and I think our the fact we 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 approach this issue every three or four weeks on the podcast, and this is what we do at the end of it. We're like, I don't know, because it's such a complex issue, and it's it really is getting at the heart of of how technology and politics and culture and society are starting to impact one another. It's not all, you know, revolutions and, and, and empowerment. There are some uh, you know downsides to this. So I think it's important. We keep coming back to this conversation. And I want to say this, Peggy, you know, put into the chat and I think we, she's expressed this before that the, the surveillance conversations kind of make us want to put our heads in the sand and, <clears throat> and really not be sure what to do. Um, I mean, there are important things that we can decide what to do and what not to do. You know, early adopters for door locks and some of the Internet of Things will be the people that get hacked. I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that. But, you know, there I think you can be at, at too much of a bleeding edge with with some technology. Uh, and I think being aware of the security side of this. Um, and here's a really, you know, pers- at the end of the the uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts article, they they talk about two-step verification. They talk about password security, and they talk about identifying phishing. You know, so being savvy and and being secure with our passwords, um, and then just being more aware of, of what's happening in terms of the media um, and promoting education, right? I mean, education is the light. This is one of the reasons why, as I speak to you in the state that's 50th in the nation in teacher salaries and in a death spiral with respect to educational funding, um, a billion dollar shortfall this year, while North Dakota was taxing from 2008 to 2014, drilling and wells at 11.5%, guess what we were taxing at? 1%. Wow. But I digress. Um, Education is is a huge part of the answer, right? We have to have an educated electorate. If we are uh, are ignorant about these things, if we are incapable of understanding the algorithms, much much less you know programming them and and constructing them ourselves, um, you know, then we truly are are the sheep being led wherever the <clears throat> the shepherd that may or may not be benevolent wants to lead us. So I think that there there's important advocacy amidst. Um, you know, these, these kind of dark headlines. Okay. Right. Well, on that, on that somber note, um, let, I, I have a quick one here. Um, AOL has announced that third, well, it, it's, it's a little unclear according to the article from nine to five Mac, but basically um, AOL is cutting off third party uh, access to aim or AOL instant messenger at the end of May. Um, and the, the message is kind of cryptic. Uh, hello, effective 328. We will no longer support connections to the AIM network via this method. If you wish to use the free consumer AIM product, we invite you to visit AIM.com for more information. Um, and so um, it's hard to know if it's based on one app or many apps, but um, it uh, AIM is, is a classic instant uh, messaging uh, uh, app. I You know, 25 years ago, I was using AIM, and I probably used it pretty regularly until Google Talk took over for me in probably 2003, 4, 5 ish, uh, which is where I've been ever since because when it moved on to GChat online, I kind of went with it. But a moment of appreciative silence for the AOL Instant Messenger. You know, I remember in 2005, 6, uh, 2005 was when I went out to California, to San Jose, to the, the Apple Distinguished Educator Institute, as they called it then. Um, and then coming back and, and having these different people in iChat, right? iChat was the AIM compatible Mac client and people would, would change their, their little status, you know, about things and feeling this connection to people, you know, even if you weren't texting them, you could see whether they were online or not. You'd see their status change. This is, you know, way before, you know, Facebook or anything like that, a real heightened sense of connectivity. Um, and then I can remember in the latter part of probably, uh, it would have been the late, it would have been the late nineties actually. So before that, 
That have been. I, I think I just messed up because I don't. I don't. I'm getting my years messed up. I think I had. I went to that Apple thing before 2005. Nine. Uh, nine. This would have been late 90s. We we started to use. Um, Oh, what was it? IC, ICQ? Do you remember ICQ? I do remember ICQ. Yeah, that's where the word <laughs> nerds were. Yeah, and we had that set up in our elementary school, and and some of our teachers would be on it, and they would they would ICQ like tech support requests, and but then you got sometimes some spam and some inappropriate things. And anyway, yes, the wild days of instant messaging and the early days of uh, social social software. Um, I've got a quick fast one too. This is February 16th from Fortune Magazine. Self-flying air taxi, uh, Ehang 184 is coming to Dubai this summer. So I think when we talk about bleeding edge technology, uh, hopping into a self-driving drone that, uh, has no, no control stick or, uh, other means of you controlling it other than the tablet that, you know, some, somebody in another place is flying it. Um, Dubai likes to be on the front side of technology. So uh, the, the uh, podcast that was talking about this was was saying, you know, I don't know who's going to be getting into this thing, but they show a businessman with his uh, briefcase, you know, hopping, hopping in here. So we're probably going to see a lot more delivery of packages and, you know, non, uh, non-human transport than we're going to see human transport. But here yeah. someone is bringing the Jetsons into the summer of 2017, and we'll have to stay tuned and check in with this one to see how that goes for brave Dubai, uh, you know, uh, folks that are needing uh, shared transport. Um, there was an article two weeks ago that said that the latest inclination um, uh, of UPS is that they won't be like having drones leave a central location and deliver packages to your house, but rather the drone will live on top of the brown truck. And while it drives through your neighborhood and delivers some packages to you directly, probably ones that require signatures, the drone will, the drones will deliver other packages that don't require signatures. And so, uh, you know, while I'm not really ready yet to get into my, my, uh, you know, back to the future style, um, you know, uh, air car, um, I'm, I am expecting to see my rigor parade of prime, prime packages show up at some point via, via UPS drone. Hey, we got to say quickly a couple things about YouTube though, right? That was a major announcement yes. for YouTube. Let's do. Do you want to, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, YouTube has announced that, and this is really interesting to me, we, we've talked a little bit about the changeover and the evolution of television before, but YouTube announced that they will be releasing a service um, that has the four major networks on it, so that's ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and 35 other channels um, in, in a, a, a kind of a bundled um, IP over TV or IPTV service. Um, that, and I think it's like $35 a month is the price I think I saw quoted. What's interesting about that though is that there doesn't seem to be a particular device that will have this. They intend it to be on, um, your mobile device and then you can of course Chromecast it to, um, a, your TV. But, uh, it's, it's almost like a personalized TV service that includes unlimited DVR service. So essentially it's, it's kind of what I've been dreaming about in regards to, uh, a, a television that you can take, um, you know, whatever shows you want, you can put, you can watch them on your mobile device, you can cast it to a larger screen, um, or you can save them for later and get access to the TV, you know, on, on your time 24 hours a day. And I think this is an incredibly uh, big move forward um, when it comes to making broadcast TV 2017 compatible. You know, Steve Jobs hinted right before his death about some breakthroughs of reinventing television and wanting to to push that through, and and that has not happened yet with Apple. I I, I was surprised and probably also pleased to see ESPN, I think, included in the list, yes. and that's gigantic, right? Because the contracts that ESPN has had with with major networks or with major you know major cable providers, um, it's it's been big, so. I think I think that is significant. And I guess if we look at how much money, you know, those of us that have cut the cable used to spend on a package, I don't want to get back to spending that amount, but $35 doesn't seem too extreme. But if you add it all up, $35 for this and then Apple Music or Spotify or, you know, how many different subscriptions do you have in your life that you're going to be willing to sustain ad nauseum? We are getting used to renting content and forget where I was just listening to uh a podcast, I think it was um, 
Oh, the, uh, our friend, see, this is my off board brain. I have to go look in my audible account, Kevin Kelly, um, his, uh, his future book, um, the inevitable, um, talking about how we're, how we're normalizing the renting of, of media content now, you know, and not having to own it, but, you know, saying, yes, I'll, you know, pay you Apple $15 a month forever, uh, in order to rent every song in your library. Um, it's pretty, it is pretty cool. And, and we're kind of in that mode. So perhaps YouTube is going to hope to do the same kind of thing. And that's probably what all companies want is that residual income that says every month you're going to be sending me a check. So. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and th- I think this is what TV needs to do to survive, to be quite honest. Um, so I'm glad they're heading in that direction. All right. Okay. Shall we geek of the weekend? Let's do, um, I'll, I'll jump in and then you can finish, uh, mine. I learned about today, have not played with it extensively, but, uh, it is a tool, very interesting, called StackUp. Get credit for what you read online. So I had some very interesting conversations today, um, with, uh, with Noah, whose Twitter handle is Senor G. Uh, who's here in the Oklahoma City area for a conference and was and stopped by uh, school to have lunch. And he's really into badging. He does a lot of work actually with Ben and Aurora Public Schools out in Colorado. <clears throat> but what this does is it actually intelligently analyzes how long you stay on articles. It does analysis for the grade level of the article. In fact, you can even put your own Google Docs, he was saying, into this to analyze. You could have students analyze, you know, what their uh, writing level was. Um, but it allows you to do challenges. And so you can challenge, you know, your class, for instance, to read on particular domains. It's not by article based, but you can also do categories and it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like a badge based way, uh, time based way of taking a look at what you're reading and then providing some visibility for that. So it's pretty interesting. And, um, there's another, I guess I could go ahead and drop this one in too. <clears throat> another link. And I just tweeted this that he shared. Um, it makes me think about annotated, uh, interactive writing. And there is a awesome website, also Ben Wilkoff is using this, called Hypothesis, but it's H-Y-P-O-T-H-E dot I-S, annotate with anyone, anywhere. That's not integrated today in with um, with StackUp. But, you know, the ideas of more, uh, the, the platforms for more robust interaction with respect to writing, and then, you know, this idea of, of badging and, and making things visible. Pretty interesting stuff. So stack up is free. And if anybody, you know, uses it or, or ends up using it as a result, please let us know. And, and, uh, it's something I'm going to check out from a surveillance standpoint. It is going to be tracking all the reading that you're doing. So that's yeah, the, there you go. that's the privacy paradox right there. So speaking of, um, I have a great uh, thing that I've only started exploring the last 48 hours. So I can't do much report from this. Uh, this is the data selfie Chrome extension. And um, it, it's, I'm actually linking the Lifehacker life article on this. But basically, the idea here is that Facebook collects a lot of data um, on you, but you don't really get to see that data. And what data selfie does is that it, it kind of gives you a sense of the profile that Facebook is building on you based on what you give Facebook clicks, likes, uh, time you spend in, in certain profiles and gives you a sense of that process. And so um, the link is to the Lifehacker article about it. There's a great video there on how it works. And that's data selfie, a great Chrome extension. So, Wes, why don't you tell us where we can find you online? I am W. Fryer, and I have been tweeting a little more as EdCamp OKC. We do have our uh, fifth annual EdCamp this weekend, and I'm excited about that. I know Peggy is going to EdCamp Phoenix, which, by the way, Peggy, I don't know if you all are hooked up with Participate Learning, but I learned today they have a deal for certificates for EdCamp. So that's one of my, my to-dos uh, here in the next couple couple days. But speedofcreativity.org is the blog. And I'm in the process of um, of getting all of my blogs updated for security, and we'll probably yeah. be sharing something about my Russian hack that I had here a couple weeks ago. But uh, thankfully, no content has been lost. Uh, you know, lesson learned. Make sure you have good backups, and those backups can be restored because I think that having cybersecurity problems are, you know, just a sign of the times. Yep, that's true. 
And my name is Jason Neifer. I'm available on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, my day job is I'm the assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in Missoula, Montana. And I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. And reminder that we are having an amazing conference, three weeks in fabulous Portland, Oregon. More information at www.ncc.org slash attend 17. Uh, you can find the EdTech Situation Room wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which means um, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, um, every podcast app that I uh, have, uh, have on my phone, uh, you can access us there. Uh, you can also see archives at our website, edtechsr.com, where you also find uh, our weekly links and what we like to think about and discuss. So we are here on Wednesday, most Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Uh, Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and then some other time, probably 4 a.m. UTC. So have a great week, and we'll see you soon.